Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine & More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. The catchy and sinister term shadow docket has been used to portray the court as having been captured by a dangerous cabal that resorts to sneaky and improper methods to get its ways. And this portrayal feeds unprecedented efforts to intimidate the court or damage it as an independent institution. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. The Supreme Court starts its annual term this week at an extraordinarily fraught moment for the court and the country. In any year, the cases that the court has agreed to decide would put it in the eye of the hurricane. It will be hearing disputes about the separation of church and state, gun control, national security, and, for good measure, the most portentous abortion case or perhaps any case that it has heard in decades. The court embarks on this blockbuster term with public opinion at near a critical all-time low through some combination of the tempestuous confirmations of its newest three members and its own performance in the first full term with a dominant hard-right majority. The justices plainly have been stung by the sharp criticism, and we've had in recent weeks the remarkable display of a public relations pushback by several members of the court. And the cauldron of controversy is fired up all the more by the ongoing political divide that continues to roil our political life and makes it, for example, the case that a majority of Republicans continue to believe that the 2020 election was stolen. The new court has not had occasion to fully define itself. This is the term when the five must lay their cards down and show the American people who they are as a court and where they are willing to take the country. And while the hard right majority can work its will as it chooses in individual cases, the consequences for the country's life and the court's political standing are hard to overstate. And to delve into the court's political role and standing in a pivotal time in its history and the country's, we have three superb commentators who are at once court experts and prominent national political analysts and all returning guests to Talking Feds, beginning with... Emily Bazelon, a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, senior research fellow at Yale Law School, author of two national bestsellers and co-host of the excellent Slate podcast, Political Gab Fest. Thanks very much for coming, Emily. Thanks for having me. Jen Rubin, an opinion columnist for the Washington Post. She covers politics, foreign, and domestic policy. Jen previously wrote for Commentary Magazine, and before she became a journalist, worked as a real live labor law attorney for two decades. She graduated from the historic Bolt Hall Law School class of 1986. Welcome back, Jen Rubin. Nice to be here. And she has... And she has a new book coming her first. Jen, can you tell us a little bit about that? Resistance, How Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump. It's the story of ordinary women, of women in political office, of presidential candidates who were so offended, so emotionally wrecked by the election of Donald Trump that they decided to roll up their sleeves and get going. And they became the central uh, force behind the, quote, resistance. Great. And finally, 
Steve Vladek, the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law. He's also the Supreme Court Analyst for CNN and a prolific writer on the court. Just this week, he testified on the court before the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's the author and editor of a variety of publications and an elected member of the extremely prestigious American Law Institute. Welcome back. Always a pleasure, Steve Vladek. Thanks, Harry. Now that I'm sinister um, and, and catchy, I guess I guess that's a new, a new sobriquet. Yeah. There you go. This week, you've become a meme, and I think the poster child for intimidating the Supreme Court. So we're glad to have you. Go easy on us if you can. Oh, I, I, again, I will try not to be, you know, sinister, but I can't, right. I, apparently I can't help myself. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a good bridge. Let's jump right in. Look, it's a platitude, but like most platitudes, it's got a lot of truth to it that the court's efficacy depends on its public standing. And as it enters this new critical, probably historic term. Where does the court stand in the public's regard? Well, if you look at polls, and there are a few of them, and they're pretty consistent, support for the Supreme Court has been plunging. And for a long time, although institutions in America came under heavy criticism, the court seemed to rise above that and sustain the public's support, both over the last few years, and really just in the last month, you've seen a plunge in its support. And I'm sure we're going to talk about the reasons for that. But I think to assume that the court is immune to such criticism or indifferent is absolutely wrong, as we have seen over the last few weeks. And we can decide whether uh, we think their rebuttals are effective or not. But boy, do they care what the public thinks. And just to underscore the numbers, I mean, if you look at the Gallup historical trends, first of all, interestingly, it took a real plunge after 2001 and Bush v. Gore when two-thirds of the public or more uh, supported it. But now it has reached uh, a new low. So what are the reasons for this and including the very recent decided dip? I mean, I don't think we know what the reasons are, right? We It's hard to tell what exactly the public is responding to. The justices from their reactions seem concerned that the public thinks that the court is acting like a bunch of politicians. So we have Justice Breyer with a whole book about how the court obeys the rule of law. He doesn't like it. Or at least a, or at least a half a book. Half a book. A short book. Should we Sorry. call it a pamphlet? So Justice Breyer has been out and about defending the court and admitting that his timing is a little tricky given some of the court's recent activities, especially in allowing Texas to effectively ban abortion with what Steve has called its shadow docket, which means that the court is operating without the normal arguments and briefing and detailed opinions about its reasoning. We have Amy Coney Barrett protesting, saying the court is not a bunch of partisan hacks. And then I'm really curious about, Steve, and all of your takes on this. We have Justice Alito making quite a fiery speech this week, attacking Steve, really, I would say, for courting this shadow docket term and saying that there's this very dangerous idea afoot, that the court is doing things secretly, that it's an attack on judicial independence. And so to me, what's interesting about this is like, the, the justices are not elected. They don't have to care about their polls, but they care about their polls. I mean, we're really seeing that. I think they super care. I mean, they always care. But now that they are out on the hustings, it really is remarkable. And I wanted to note a clear distinction in the Alito speech and the Barrett speech, where Alito was very thin-skinned and actually assailing 
the court's critics for their supposed bad faith and just caring about results. There's so much to say here. And, yeah. and you know, Emily, I think, is is right on the money that that one of the many takeaways from the, the Barrett, Breyer, Thomas, Alito speaking tour is that they're reading their press. Alito and Barrett especially have been very direct in attacking the media and not just the professoriate, the, the expert class, which I have to think means that they're reading the things that they're attacking. But Harry, it cuts deeper than that because you mentioned the Senate Judiciary hearing on Wednesday. This was a talking point for the Republican senators, too, that anyone who has the temerity to criticize what the court is doing is arguing in bad faith. They're seeking to delegitimize the court, as opposed to actually asking, is the court doing things that might justify some of this criticism? It can't possibly be that the court is deserving of any of this criticism. And yet we have data that suggests that the criticisms are valid. We have public reactions that suggest the criticisms are valid. We have three incredibly contentious confirmation processes, one non-confirmation process to suggest that the criticisms are valid. So I think if the question is why this is happening from the justices' perspective, like why are they going on a speaking tour? It's because, Harry, this is an existential threat to the court. And if you are a conservative majority that wants to be able to take that conservative majority out for a spin, you need a legitimate court to do it and you need public approval to do it. And so if you're not going to confess your own sins, you've got to find a boogeyman and the boogeyman becomes either the press for accurately reporting on what the court is doing or people like me who try to convey to the public in maybe more academic terms some of the downsides of what the court is doing. Jen, I want to come to you because, I mean, what Emily and Steve say, at least serve up a couple different potential causes. There's the um, action of the political branches in the last four years, beginning with the uh, shutdown of Garland and the cynical ramming through of the last two Trump appointees on the one hand. And then there's all the things the justices have done on the other. And you wrote a column that as between the two made it pretty clear who's to blame here. The justices themselves have only themselves to blame. Can you spin that out? Sure. First of all, I find it absolutely delightful to know that they care so much about what we write. And there's nothing worse than being ignored and that this has landed a blow to such a degree that they now feel compelled to do the equivalent of the Richard Nixon, I am not a crook tour, says something. It also says something how completely tone deaf they are in responding in this fashion, which, of course, merely adds to our list of reasons why these people are behaving like political hacks. If you say, I'm not a political hack, go to the Mitch McConnell arena, have Mitch McConnell sitting next to you. Gosh, people are going to think you're a political hack. But I do come back to the justices themselves. Let me start with a few points. First of all, I'm old enough, Harry's old enough to remember when justices didn't do this. They didn't go out on speaking tours. They let their opinions speak for themselves because they were not in a political salesmanship role. They were justices. So part of this is brought on by their own willingness to go out into political settings to make arguments in front of partisans and to receive their applause and their appreciation. So that would be number one. Number two is it's not simply the justices being victims of a political confirmation process. It's how they behave in them. When you have Justice Kavanaugh attacking Democrats as out to get him as part of some nefarious plot, he sounds like a bitter, defensive partisan. 
that's not a expression of judicial temperament. So what are we to think when he then becomes a Supreme Court justice? Third point, Steve's shadow docket, the way of manipulating quite simply the way that they respond to emergency appeals, the seemingly different standard that they employed during the Trump administration when they were all too happy to hop in and rescue the administration. And the process of making decisions without the benefit of full argument, without the benefit of full explanation. And lastly, I would say that they brought this on themselves by their real cavalier attitude, is the only way I can describe it, concerning precedent. And much of the criticism I make comes from the dissents of justices Hagan and Sotomayor, who are calling out the majority and are saying, you guys... You know, what happened to stare decisis? What happened to 40 years of precedent? The only thing that's changed has been the personnel. And the notion that justices feel not only like they are free to depart in new ways, but almost obligated because they are so driven by this political philosophy, which I would say is a shorthand for a partisan ideological philosophy says a lot about where they are. If they don't want to be taken as partisans, Rule incrementally, the old adage that you try and you uh, decide the case before you. You don't, as Justice Alito did, rewrite statutes as he did with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, making up new text, making up new standards, your judicial role, and people will then hopefully respect it. So I think they are completely clueless, making this much worse. And really kind of proving the point of the chief justice, who has been the major institutionalist trying to restrain these folks and keep the credibility of the court high so that there won't be a popular rebellion. So there won't be fuel for the fire of term limits for justices. So there won't be an assumption that this is just uh, partisan politics in robes. So I think some introspection um, and some intervention would really help the justices as they win their way through this process. All right. And by the way, mentioning the Sotomayor and Kagan criticisms, that was a deafening silence in Alito's speech. He might have actually talked about the merits and he never even mentioned that. But I think we are all on the same page. It needn't be that way. Look, there have been times in the court's history in which they've been as much in the eye of the hurricane, and as you say, they assiduously avoided argument, and they did their talking on the page. And so there is something different here. And my sense, going back from the nominations, is that the main thrust of it among at least all of us who were somewhat critical is they're doing what people were concerned they were doing, it, and, and, and that is a, a kind of determined and sometimes wrecking ball job of the precedent itself and moving the lob. I, I actually think if they were just doing what the what folks like me were concerned that they were do that they were going to do, we still wouldn't be where we are today, Harry. I, I think what is so telling and exasperating in the same breath about the last month is that they are peeing on us and telling it's raining, right? That they are doing all of these things and then going out and complaining. It's one thing, right, to usher in an incredibly conservative era in the court's jurisprudence, right? To reach rulings that wouldn't have been possible as recently as two years ago, to do all these things under the cover of emergency orders where they haven't historically made new law. Like, those are all problems. But then they go out in public and say, you guys, not only are these not 
not problems. The real problem is those of you telling us these are problems. And that's the part of this that I find so, I mean, Jen's exactly right, tone deaf, which is like, you know what you're doing, own it. Defend it, right? Don't don't attack the critics for actually telling the truth, right? Rationalize what you're doing. Explain why the criticisms are unfair. And we're not going to do like a point by point refutation of the Alito speech, but, but can so you give many us a few the, highlights because I really, you know, you are very well positioned to catch the, you know, he was making, he, he made some errors to be kind about it. So the, there, there were factual errors. There were analytical errors. He purported to describe the quote, 10 criticisms of the rise of these emergency orders when about six of them are not criticisms anyone actually makes and the other four he misstated, right? His evidence of why these criticisms aren't fair were outlier rulings that don't align with those as opposed to the overall pattern. Emily, my favorite, right? He responded to the criticism that these rulings are coming late at night by suggesting that the SB8 ruling had to come because the law was going to go into effect at midnight, even though the court had let it go into effect the previous day at midnight. And, and so, I mean, some of that could just be sloppy research by his mm, clerk. Some of that could just be, you know. he was there but, for that, Steve. It's, it's not that long ago. <laughs> that's fair. And I do think we actually now know that he wrote the SB8 order. And yeah. That I think came through yes, very powerfully in the speech. That's, that's a great point. But, you know, Emily, there's so much in the speech that, that was factually, that as, as probably the only person who was in a position to do a point-by-point -point analysis of every single factual claim he made, you know, I lost my mind. The larger point, though, is not that there were individual data points that were wrong. It was that he was not trying to persuade anyone on the other side. He was certainly not trying to persuade someone like me. He was not trying to persuade you. He was not trying to persuade probably most of the people listening to this podcast. And, and that's my question about his speech. That's my question about Amy Coney Barrett's speech at the McConnell Center. Like, who do they think their audience is? Because to me, it's one thing for the court to be taking this incredibly sharp turn to the right that, frankly, we all expected, given these confirmations, that, you know, that when Kennedy retired, when Ginsburg died, that we knew was coming. It's something else entirely for them to turn around and say, what you're seeing isn't real. Well, right? it feels like, like know, gaslighting, right? I mean, it yes. just feels like That's gaslighting. Gaslighting is a, when you're experiencing it, it's deeply frustrating. I wanted to just drill down on the Texas case for a minute, because I think it exhibits what you're talking about. And someone, I maybe it was you, Steve, sorry, someone tweeted last night that listening to Alito, it's as if the court has forgotten how to do administrative stays. I like, was Ian Milhauser. <laughs> thank you for giving Ian that. This is a thing that happens. The court ask, gets asked to decide things in an emergency fashion. And in previous cases of abortion restrictions going into effect, the court has absolutely known how to stop a law from going into effect while they figure out whether it's constitutional or not. And there was this, in my view, kind of pretend game that this SB8 statute in Texas was so procedurally complicated that they couldn't figure out how to do it. When in fact, what was really going on was just a kind of switcheroo in the legal convention about how you sue, who you sue in particular, right? So we have this precedent from 1908, it's called Ex Parte Young. When you have a statute that a plaintiff thinks is unconstitutional, you sue the state attorney general or the governor, or whoever the chief law enforcement officer is. In SB8, it's all private enforcement. It's all $10,000 bounty hunters. There is no state enforcement. And so the plaintiffs, who were a bunch of abortion rights folks and clinics, sued everyone they could think of. They sued the clerks of the court. They sued the judges who would 
have to bring the law into effect. They sued the attorney general. They sued a private citizen who had threatened to bring one of these $10,000 bounty actions. And all the courts have to do is like decide who the plaintiff is. Surely there should be some plaintiff if you're following this kind of procedural precedent. And in fact, the court acted as if this was like an impossible question to answer. The procedural complexity of it meant that the plaintiffs were likely to lose on the merits of the procedural part, even though the statute under Roe versus Wade, until they overturn or hollow it out, is on its face unconstitutional. It was kind of a farce. And so you're right, Steve, I think what's difficult is to then listen to Alito Barrett, and I would include Breyer in this um, group as well, tell us that this is business as usual. They're not politicians because they don't always come to the outcome that is good for Democrats or Republicans. And it's such a narrow definition of what it means to be political actors at this moment in which they are really pushing the envelope. It's hard to swallow. And as Steve has mentioned, not just a farce, but patently inconsistent with their treatment of shadow dockets in other cases. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we unpeel the truth about Pinot Noirs to see where the grapes shine best, Willamette Valley in Oregon or Burgundy, France. Here in the U.S., we classify our New World wines by the grape. Old world wines, like those in Europe, are classified by the region. In France, Burgundy is not only the region where Pinot Noir wines are from, but it's also the Pinot's ancestral home. No pressure, Oregon. To level set, Pinot Noir is a thin-skinned grape, which makes it difficult to grow, especially in warmer climates. Burgundy happens to have a cooler climate with ample cloud cover, making it the perfect home for Pinots. The cooler temperature allow the wines to ripen longer, giving the grapes extra time to develop more complex flavors like strawberry and dark berries to black tea and earthy minerality. Burgundy produces Pinot Noirs that are full of aromas and nuances. You can find this in a bottle of Edouard Delaunay Bourgogne Rouge and Louis Jadot Bourgogne Rouge, which I highly recommend. If we hop across the pond, we have Pinots from Willamette Valley in Oregon with similar cloud cover, climate, and soil composition as Burgundy. Oregon produces smooth and fruity wines that are slightly earthy and most definitely tasty, giving the region of Burgundy a run for its money. Some of my favorites are the Samuel Robert Pinot Noir and Domaine Druhan Pinot Noir. You can find all of these at Total Wine & More, where we have a huge selection of Pinot Noirs from Oregon to Burgundy, plus wines from every region in between. All that's left now is to reach up to our shelves and pluck one out for yourself. I just wanted to double back and say something that has changed since previous days when the court didn't go out and talk, and, and it has to do with Emily's point about the audience. I think today... Justices, even post-confirmation, themselves inhabit these separate silos where one goes to a certain conference and is lionized and heroic there. Others go to different ones or best don't go at all. And that's part of the divide here. Part of the hypocrisy here is that there's a duet or a, a dance, a tango going on between the activists in Texas who devise this diabolical scheme precisely because they could avoid judicial review. And then Alito 
sort of play acting through this charade and say, oh, yes, that would be the reason that we can't decide. So there's this shadow boxing or this shadow duet between the activists and the court as if this was choreographed in advance which in some sense it was because they are no longer at this point looking to simply get rulings on the merits. It's not enough for them to say, here's a statute. We think Roe is unconstitutional. We think the court has been wrong for 45 years. Here it is. Go for it, justices. That would be an intellectually straightforward way to approach the law. The parties would have to brief it. The court would have to justify itself. And instead, both the activists and the court go through this sneaky little maneuver, hoping no one will notice that suddenly abortion is impossible to obtain in the state of Texas. That in and of itself is political. That in and of itself is departing from the judicial role, which by definition has all the things that they're not doing, forcing parties to brief forcing justices to spell out their argument, forcing justices to wrestle with precedent. So the very action that is involved here is inherently unjudicial. I was really struck with Alito. You know, he he basically congratulated the court for recognizing. This is how he said, no, we weren't taking a wrecking ball to Roe Casey because we knew that challengers raised serious questions regarding the law's constitutionality. The dissenters had a slightly different and more accurate take, an obviously unconstitutional abortion regulation backed by a wholly unprecedented enforcement scheme. And as Sotomayor says, you know, what the majority did was to bury its heads in the sand, right, knowing all of this. But to Emily's point, I mean, the way that I frame this to my students who who I've been yammering out about SB8 for you know since classes started is do we actually believe that had this been California and guns the court comes out the same way and if the answer is no which i suspect we all believe the answer would be no that is a revealing indictment of how we understand what the court is doing. And to Jen's point, right, that the only way the court can convince us to the contrary is to actually do it, is to say we are codifying the procedural concerns Emily raised. We are saying, yes, every state can do this, even though that means states can now do things we don't like. And instead, what they do is they play the shell game where they don't actually hold anything that can be that can bind them in a future case with facts they don't like. They just find ways to grant or deny emergency relief in ways that they may not perceive as partisan, but that are rigidly partisan in operation and homogeneously partisan. I mean, for all the talk about how sometimes you get strange bedfellows and the court's not always divided along partisan lines, that is not true at all. In the cases, yeah. Right, that's not true at all in this context. I mean, the, right. I mean, of every single, every single order the court issued during its term that ends, you know, on Sunday, every single one in which there was at least one public dissent, there wasn't a single order in which a justice to the right of John Roberts joined a justice to the left. The court is homogenous on this stuff. And I think that goes to Jen's point about how the lack of explanation contra Justice Alito is not just because time is short and explanations are, are, are tricky. It's exactly what is feeding the perception 
even if it's not necessarily from the justice's perspective, the reality, that this is politics all the way down. And that's what's harming the court's reputation. And instead of saying, actually, we're gonna start committing to explaining ourselves better so that you guys can see how this is not about the fact that this is Texas and that's California. I think they will be explaining themselves by the end of the term, right? Because we have the normal traditional docketing of an important challenge to gun regulation in New York. We have the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban on the docket, an important case about funding for religious schools in the state of Maine, and some other stuff. So we are going to get the normal process. And I, I, I guess the larger question for me is how far does the court lurch from public opinion, right? Because historically, we've seen the court do this a few times before. The 1850s and the 1860s, painful departures from where society seemed to be going, affecting the court's ruling on, you know, denying citizenship to Black people at the time, etc. And then you see in the 1860s, the number of justices on the court changed four times, three times. Like, Congress was responding to what the court was doing. Then you have the famous Lockdown decision, which really shuts down social legislation, protecting um, health and safety in the workplace, and not an immediate response to that by the American public. But then you have, during the New Deal, most famously, the court starts striking down FDR's signature pieces of legislation. And then the justices themselves pull back, right? FDR threatens to change the number of justices once again, and it's a justice switching sides and then a bunch of retirements of other justices that really pulls the court back from the brink. In the 60s, the Warren court in a liberal direction gets out of sync with public opinion, probably contributes in a sense the backlash to the election of Richard Nixon. And you see the composition of the court change. You see Republican presidents get a lot of appointments. And now, though, we have a situation where it seems to me that because of the influence of the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation, which have been very, very good at what they do, grooming very reliably conservative justices, you could imagine the court really going quite a long way, even as, you know, the American electorate diversifies, maybe becomes somewhat more progressive and really getting out of sync with the democratically elected branches, but also entrenching some of the rules about elections and voting that help Republicans stay in power with a kind of minority strategy. And that's really anti-democratic. I mean, beyond just the questions about nine people in robes making rules, if the rules they're making reinforce the power of their political party that brought them there, that's not something we've really seen in American history. I just don't know how that's going to shake out for everybody. So this is the brooding question of the term, I think, and you're right, they're going to have to in some way put up and show their bona fides, and that's why their current low standing and their obvious insecurity about it, I think, are, it's important. We're not ESPN, and I, I don't mean to issue exactly predictions, but I've got an, an op-ed in today's LA Times, and let's just close this section out with, and that basically says, here's 18 reasons why they, they themselves shouldn't, wouldn't want to overrule Roe v. Wade, but now on the other side, they took the Mississippi case. And that seems to me to be a, a, an indication that's very hard to rebut that they are spoiling to overrule. Any comments or any ways in which there's a flaw in the reasoning that anyone want to point out about what we may be seeing in their abortion jurisprudence this term? 
I think after this last display, they are going to be careful not to issue the words Way or Casey is overturned. They're not going to go there. They figured that much out. But instead, I think it's going to be this salami slicing process of narrowing what is any sort of constitutional core for abortion rights. It's going to be fascinating to see how they do it. I think we got a preview, actually, from Justice Alito in the Section 2 case. They can come up with all kinds of tests out of thin air. They can make up all kinds of rules. They can come up with new balancing tests. They can make these completely subjective, unperceivable rules that basically give states a great degree of latitude. And what I think is going to happen is they will make it sufficiently unclear that legislatures are going to be doing this. You you thought we had a trend now. Wait until they give a sort of open door or have some mushy little test or suggest that maybe not this, but, oh, yes, if a statute meets these five requirements, absolutely, you know, we might reverse ourselves. So I think it's going to be this, again, this wink, wink, nod, nod, and they are going to invite not only legal challenges, and this is what really is the heart of why we have story decisis, but legal chaos. No one is going to know what the law is because it's all going to be about what now six justices think they can get away with in the face of public opinion. Or five, yes. Or five, yes. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today, you're going to hear about the pocket veto, a complicated parliamentary maneuver that permits the president, if the stars properly align, to veto a bill without doing anything. And to tell us about it, we're really pleased to welcome Vendela Vida, the prominent American novelist and journalist. She's the author of six books, including this year's national bestseller, We Run the Tides, and Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name. So I give you Vendela Vida on the pocket veto. What is a pocket veto and how is it different from a regular veto? For a bill to become law, it must be approved by both houses of Congress and presented to the president for signature. When presented with proposed legislation, a president who wants the legislation to become law can choose to either affirmatively sign it or simply do nothing for 10 days. After which, so long as Congress is in session, the bill automatically becomes law. This enactment through inaction is called a default enactment. If a president is opposed to a particular bill and wants to prevent it from becoming law, she can veto the bill. The president's veto power derives from Article 1, Section 7 of the U.S. Constitution. There are two types of valid presidential vetoes, regular and pocket. A regular veto, also called a return veto, occurs when the president, rather than signing the bill, returns it to Congress with her objections within the 10-day period provided in the Constitution. Congress can override a regular veto with the support of two-thirds of the legislators in both the House and Senate. Sometimes, however, Congress adjourns during the 10-day period granted to the president to either sign or object to a bill. That may be a function of the last-minute rush of business in a legislative session, or Congress may strategically be trying to keep the president from exercising a return veto. If Congress is not in session, 
the president can't return the bill and therefore can't execute a regular veto. But she can execute a pocket veto by simply declining to sign the legislation into law. Congress cannot override a pocket veto. The only way the rejected legislation can become law is if it is reintroduced as a new bill in the following Congress and goes through the full process. What counts as an adjournment sufficient to give rise to a pocket veto, rather than a default enactment, has been a source of conflict between the executive and legislative branches. We have some guidance from the Supreme Court. At one extreme, where Congress has fully ended its annual legislative session, a pocket veto will be effective. At the other, the Supreme Court has ruled that a very brief adjournment of one chamber may not give rise to a pocket veto as that chamber may designate an agent to receive a vetoed bill. Past presidents made frequent use of pocket vetoes, but in recent years, they have been a rarity. For Talking Feds, I'm Vandala Vita. Thanks very much to Vendela Vita for explaining the pocket veto. The paperback edition of Vendela's recent novel, We Run the Tides, will be published by Echo later this month. Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million healthcare supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's ourhealthcalifornia.org. I'd like to move to a little bit about internal court dynamics. Lots of commentary about the Chief Justice's waning influence, inability to hold the center against the five right-wingers. Are reports of his, you know, demise greatly exaggerated? No. <laughs> no. I mean, the SB8 case is the icing on the cake of how little power John Roberts has over the court now, because he dissented for exactly the right reason, which is even though I'm no fan of abortion, you know, uh, he, not me, right? But even, right, you know, I'm not going to abide the cynical, preposterous ploy that Texas is trying to perpetuate on the court system. Unprecedented. Right. Yeah. But it was a dissent. He doesn't control the court on this issue. He concurred in the judgment in June Medical. It's not going to be up to him. I mean, he might stay in the majority so he can control the opinion assignment. But this is now Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett's court. And, you know, I think that's why, you know, before yesterday, I would have said it was the Barrett speech that was the real bellwether. Now I'm sort of conflicted as to which speech is more tone deaf. But Harry, I think this is not John Roberts's court at all. And I think that's what we're seeing in these speeches, in these decisions, in these public reactions. It's exactly what Roberts, I think, was desperately trying to avoid and at least for a time had succeeded in avoiding. Yeah, you could see him grimacing in his chambers. You mentioned Barrett and Kavanaugh. Let's just talk briefly about the differences among the three Trump nominees, because one senses Gorsuch has thrown in pretty completely with Thomas and Alito. Where do you see the three in lockstep and where are there significant differences of style or substance among them? I think that they are in lockstep on substance on almost everything that matters, and that the only difference is judicial incrementalism versus judicial aggressiveness. That 
Kavanaugh and Barrett are both instinctively, and I think in some ways because of their confirmation processes, more inclined toward the incremental yeah. change in doctrine, more sort of longer term view. And Gorsuch, I think, has thrown in with Thomas and Alito in almost all of the cases that matter on, we've got the votes, let's go. Look at the Philadelphia, the Fulton Religious Freedom case from last term, where there was no need for the court to overrule Smith, and yet Thomas Alito and Gorsuch go out of their way to say we should overrule Smith. Look at the Pennsylvania late arriving ballots case where it was Thomas Alito and Gorsuch who thought the court should take the case up when Kavanaugh and Barrett had the good sense to say the last thing we should possibly do is touch an election case. So I don't think it's that they have radically different views about where the constitutional answer should be. I think they have radically different views about how quickly the court should upend him. So Kagan has emerged as the most strategic justice on the left, probably the court's best right does she have any real influence, though? Are they at all cowed by the threat of her criticism or seduced by her overtures for compromise, or she's just a grudgingly respected person that they don't really pay attention to? I think that when you have the votes, you have the votes. And so the conservative majority has the votes. They might prefer to have less skilled dissenters on the other side, but it's really a pretty small hit to take when you are reaching the results you want to reach. And I think just to pick up on what Steve was saying, if there is a distinction among the conservatives, it's about tone and speed. And that's not nothing, but it doesn't usually determine outcome. I mean, these folks are voting together as a block last term in between 85 and over 90% of the cases. So we're talking about the reasoning for why Philadelphia should have to continue its contract with Catholic Social Services, even though Catholic Social Services discriminates against LGBT would-be foster parents. We're not talking about whether Philadelphia has to continue the contract. It does. That's the Fulton case Steve was referring to before. Do you concur that the differences such as they are between Gorsuch on the one hand and Kavanaugh and Barrett on the other are basically stylistic, secondary, and nothing to write home about? In general, yes. Every once in a while, you get an outlier. In the Title VII case, for example, Gorsuch actually decided to read a statute and sort of go through a parsing as to whether Title VII, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, covered LGBTQ gender identity cases to the great alarm of the other conservatives who thought this sort of thing wasn't allowed. That, I think, stood out because it is such the exception to the rule. And of course, it wasn't a constitutional case. It was a statutory case. So in general, I agree. I do think, however, that Hagen does push their buttons in a particular way. And, you know, I go to the case, the redistricting case, where basically the justices don't understand statistics and don't understand math. And she's at pains to explain to them there are these computer things now, and they can generate all sorts of models, and you can really tell what's within an acceptable range and what's not. And I think that's what dissents do. They basically show up the weaknesses, the leaps of logic. And because we now know the justices are very sensitive about being called out, I think there is some impetus for them to respond in some fashion. Now, maybe they just ignore her, but I think more likely they're going to have to start responding in some coherent fashion. Does that change the outcome? No. Does it get us back closer to where we should be in terms of judging? I hope so. And I would add one thing. 
the start of the Scalia, and now it's gotten totally out of hand, and that is the kind of mud throwing via you know footnotes and other things between the justices. They don't want to be treated like partisans. Stop insulting each other in kind of schoolyard ways and assuming bad faith of the other justices. So I can't say that I'm optimistic. I think at one point I was more optimistic that Gorsuch, and I I think I mistook style over uh, substance, but I think he's probably in that same uh, in that same club. Impressionistic, and some might think it kind of silly, but there are times when you can see the nine of them in almost junior high terms, and I think of both Kavanaugh and Barrett as kind of mainstream class president types having a more of a prideful distance and being more willing in his own almost self-image to set himself apart. He also, relatedly, has this willingness to sometimes tongue wag and give kind of civics lessons to the rest of the court to which they obviously don't take kindly. So I can see a slight divide and it's going to matter because as everybody says, they, they're they in a foxhole now and the fire's already started before the really big events of this term. And you would think a kind of sticking together ethos would be important. On the contrary, though, I think you're getting maybe Barrett and Kavanaugh together, and now a little bit of divide that I thought would have been less apparent between Kavanaugh and Roberts on one hand, and then the two of them and Gorsuch on the other. So you have plausible ways of breaking down the court in a 3-3-3 way, in a 2-1 way, etc. I, however, agree that those potential stress points will matter more in not the biggest ticket cases, but as Steve has said, and it's a really important point, there are very important cases about, say, executive power or administrative agencies where the divides might emerge and people don't realize the import of the rulings until after they've been made. This goes back to to the conversation, though, about sort of the dissents and what the progressive justices think they're accomplishing with their dissents. So I don't think Justice Sotomayor is ever writing for to try to persuade the majority. She's writing for history, and she's writing for the people who she thinks are not well served by the court in the mode of John Marshall Harlan. And maybe we can hope that one day that, like him, she will be vindicated. Kagan is for the majority. One can go back a couple of years to find most of the problematic things that are happening on the shadow docket. Just to say that, and and we haven't even talked about guns. We haven't talked about a lot of things, and you're right. I purposely meant to use Mississippi. It's the most important, but it's also illustrative of all the political divides and politicization of the court that we're talking about. But in a normal, calm period with a functioning political life, this would be shaping up as a blockbuster term where the court was going to make very important pronouncements that would influence American life. That we now know that the court that's going to do it is in a fundamental way, and this was my basic indictment against the nominations, not the integrity of any of the justices, but just they were as a whole constituting a court that was drawn disproportionately from a very narrow spectrum of legal thoughts that was that going to be out of step 
with both the society and the profession, and that just spells trouble for the court generally. But now we'll have them giving some very important decisions that are going to affect the country for years. So we just have a couple minutes left for our final feature on Talking Feds of five words or fewer. And today's question comes from Anna Conconi, who asks, I guess the obvious question, but with a little twist, will Breyer retire before the next first Monday in October? And why or why not? So that second part puts a little strain on the limitations. No. Justices don't like considering mortality. I think he will. Mm, I already used four words. I think Breyer will retire. I'm not sure. I think he will because his legacy is at stake. And he has just seen what happened to Justice Ginsburg when she held on and, you know, very sadly died on the bench and has been replaced by Amy Coney Barrett, who is going to be on the opposite side of the causes that Justice Ginsburg held dear. Yes, but it won't help. And to the second question, I think Emily has it right that for all of his pontificating, Breyer cares deeply about his legacy. And when he says in public, I don't intend to retire on the bench two years after, or sorry, not even one year after Justice Ginsburg suffered from the same lack of foresight, I think he will eventually come to his senses. But the larger point is that replacing Justice Breyer, even with someone progressives would be excited about, which is no sure thing in a 50-50 Senate. Even if that happens, it is still a six to three court. It moves the dissents further to the left. It does not move the court further to the left. Yeah, it's a good point, And who knows what it does to Roberts. Okay, I'll say yes. And for court slash legacy. <laughs> All right, we're out of time. Thank you very much to Emily, Jen, and Steve. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web talkingfeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. In just the last few days, we've posted discussions about the reported rise in white-collar prosecutions, the new whistleblower legislation for the CFPB, the 2020 census, the German election, the John Eastman coup memo, and the Stephen Donziger Chevron saga. So there's really a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it and see what we have and decide if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. 
Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. Our editors are Dustin Nals and Matt McArdle. David Lieberman, Rosie Dawn Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ray Cohen-Gilbert and Kalena Tano. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much for Vendela Vita for teaching us about the pocket veto. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time. Mm-hmm.